Media Focus with Paul Blanchard. This week, the paedophile next door. Channel 4 has faced criticism for airing a documentary that gave the paedophile's view on child sexual abuse. Did the broadcaster make the right call? The future of local TV. Over the last year, cities as diverse as Glasgow, Grimsby and Belfast are among 13 cities to launch a local TV channel. But with changing viewing habits, do they have a future? And The National. Only a few weeks after launch, Scotland's first pro-independence daily newspaper has been called a great success. But can it sustain its launch momentum in the long term? And as usual joining us are two of the media's best and brightest jasper jackson is editor and chief analyst at the mediabriefing.com and katie glass is a columnist and feature writer at the sunday times media focus so first up was channel 4 right to screen the controversial documentary the paedophile next door the broadcaster has been criticized for airing a hard-hitting documentary that gave the paedophile's view on child sexual abuse and including an interview with a self-confessed paedophile with what they called coming out on camera Although the NSPCC has given the programme its support, a number of campaigners have since raised concerns and questioned whether the documentary needlessly put their subject's life at risk. Katie, did Channel 4 do the right thing here? I think for a commercial channel, you always wonder why they've done something. And there's always like a sense that, you know, that this is for them, of course, there's going to be an element of sensationalism and, you know, they're trying to attract a big audience and that kind of thing. So you maybe question their motives. But on the whole, I think... It's a wonderful, amazing thing uh, to always get as many voices as possible in any argument. Um, Like, I'm so anti the current kind of vibe about banning people. And instead, I just think you should always encourage people because the more we hear other people's opinions, the more we can kind of debate them openly. So I think when UKIP went on Question Time, for example, that was amazing. Um, I wrote a piece recently for The Sun that was all about how I'm really anti the new laws to imprison people who troll online because... Uh, my personal feeling would be that we should like retweet those comments, we should discuss those comments, you know, the kind of opinions that people used to voice in kind of locker rooms and, you know, in private, now they're saying in very public ways. And I think we should totally encourage that. So it's an amazing thing. And actually, as a journalist, I have to say, it's an amazing thing that Channel 4 managed to find someone who was willing to do that. I think, so, okay, so the larger question, which is whether or not they did the right thing by sharing, I, absolutely, I think they should. Uh, whether... An adult individual has the right to make their own choice about whether they want to appear in a TV show. I would say absolutely. I mean, it's easy to say, oh, you know, that person kind of seems a bit mad, but would we stop people going on Jerry Springer? Would we stop under-18s going on X Factor? Which is kind of an ongoing debate, isn't it? Um, But I think someone's over the age of 18 and they've not actually been sectioned or, you know, they're not currently being held under the Mental Health Act, then they've got the right to make their own decision about whether they want to talk. And I often find myself... Um, approaching people, you know, to take part in articles. And sometimes I feel they are going to tell stories that people aren't going to necessarily receive very well. But if that's an, a grown-up and um, they want to tell their story, I think it's It's not important. your job to self-censor, as it were, then? No, absolutely. And in fact, to me, the much more important question when we talk about, like, duty of care, um, you know, the piece has to be objective. I would never want to say to someone I was interviewing, you know, as soon as I start assuming a duty of care over them, does that mean I start changing the kind of comments that they say to me or censoring them if someone tells me something do I think well you said too much and start removing some of those and then at what point does my duty of care stop me actually being an objective journalist you know what's the point in getting a paedophile involved in a program if he's going to say certain things you then don't allow him to say and I absolutely think they did the right thing yeah to include all of that information Jasper (laughs) I mean I agree entirely with pretty much um pretty much everything you said the inevitable problem is that you're, you're making a TV show, it gets broadcast, you move on to the next TV show. Obviously, this is someone who is, whatever you think about his predilections, is is 
is in danger of potentially being attacked or potentially being tracked down. It's a lot easier to track people down these days. The question is whether or not they're providing him with any support after the actual event to ensure that he doesn't come to any actual physical harm. Um, I think you, you probably have a duty as a journalist to try and ensure that your coverage as much as possible isn't going to lead to someone being attacked. But Jasper, to take Katie's wider point there, assuming that they, they have you know done as much as they can to mitigate the danger, the ultimate test would be is are we going to have this guy on or not? Do you think that, they, you know, that these dangers can be mitigated and that he ought to have gone per se? Um, from what I understand, this is, this is a guy who feels a certain way and wanted to express that and also, again, from what I understand, to try and help other people who are in a similar position to him control themselves to um, change the understanding so there's more to be done to both help people like him but also to prevent child abuse which is inevitably the point of this you're trying to prevent child abuse which is the the big problem that this whole show is addressing if he's prepared to make that decision and i also understand a doctor was involved as well in the process um then yeah i mean he's he's an adult he's he's troubled he's he's got problems but he doesn't seem to be insane he's not sectioned um he seems to be in control of himself, and that's kind of the point of him being on the mm. show. That suggests that he's got enough willpower, enough control of himself to make the decision to be on TV. I think we're back to the whole kind of uh, student politics days when they used to give have a no-platform policy to certain people. Where do you think the line should be drawn then? In that case, if you know, can any broadcaster put anyone on, providing it's handled sensitively, no matter how abhorrent their views? Um, it's a really, really difficult one. There is a problem with a an attempt to shut down views that you find abhorrent. The fact is it is the media's responsibility to to reflect a range of views, possibly not um, give them all equal weight. I think you know, you've, you've got issues such as the climate change denial aspect where the BBC puts on climate change denials and gives them the same platform as, as people who agree with 95% of scientists that, that climate change is happening and is man-made. Um, the BBC is addressing that and I think you, know, you, you have to treat things with a certain level of um, journalistic analysis and, and present things with their right weighting. But at the same time, you know, I mean, we're having debates about paedophilia all over the UK all the time. You should probably have some of the voices of people who actually experience those feelings because it has to add to the debate. Katie, there's there's quite a strong point there that, um, in a sense, it links to you, you what you were saying about Twitter trolls, that we, we ought to allow freedom of speech almost at all costs because we then can challenge their views and also learn from them in terms of helping prevent this behaviour. Would, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can't think of an example where I wouldn't allow, you know, allow is such an awful word. I just think everyone should be able to say what they want. And to give a personal example, you know, when someone tweets me and says you're a c- it doesn't feel great. But like, I always retweet it because people who follow me on Twitter will wade in and say, you know, that's not a nice way to talk. And, you know, the other option is to kind of feel, you know, that shame and sit alone with it when someone sends you a message like that. And in terms of, you know, paedophilia was something people in the 50s used to be so ashamed to talk about. It's hard to even know whether it's become more prevalent or we're just able to talk about it more because there used to be this culture of just, you know, within families, people being unable to... It's absolutely heartbreaking, you know, unable to tell their own parents. And I don't think it's as simple as that, but if those are the options that we either... You know, we we know that more the more we talk about issues, the more, you know, we're able to discuss them and resolve them. I mean, I don't want to get into a kind of pie situation where we're saying, you know, let's explore paedophilia and it's something that we can understand. But, like, I do think... You have to go some way towards a kind of what is it like um didactic or you know and what what's the rationale be t- behind retweeting people who were 
incredibly rude to, should we say? I mean, even if you agree with their right to, to say that, it's clearly quite rude. Isn't that giving them some of the attention they seek? It's because I, I think it's so important to have those views out there. You know, and actually, I feel and it's exactly the same with paedophilia. I think it's that sense of shame that the options are either to hide these things or to publicly talk about them. I just think people always held these opinions. People always held, you know, racist opinions, for example. We can either, or sexist opinions. You know, I think it's so wrong that we would ban people from saying sexist things on Twitter or we would ban people who are sexist from being able to perform. Instead, we should hear those views because those views exist and otherwise they exist in private. So I'm all about kind of bringing it out of the woodwork and creating a debate. <laughs> I mean, there's a, a related issue in the way that journalism's changed in an era of social media and, and the internet where anyone can express their views on social media. Uh, it's almost impossible to actually completely close down a set of views. Mm. Um, they're taking place, often taking place within closed communities who are discussing them uh, privately. Journalists' job, to some extent, is to unearth those, to discuss them within wider society and try and contextualise them, try and challenge them. It's increasingly a curational role of the many different opinions expressed on the internet rather than just going, I'm going to pick this particular issue and this is the only issue that's going to get any airtime or, or coverage in print. I think that's a fundamental change in the way journalism's uh, happening and it's one we have to adapt to. Absolutely. You said that much better than me. I mean, fundamentally, the reason I retweet because I have 5,000 followers and they have 20 followers. But these are all opinions, you know, in the world and actually in the process of like swearing at me. Sometimes they do have something to say that's different to what I expressed in my article. I don't think I'm the one who gets to have all the opinions. You know, I want to hear what everyone's got to say. So kind of retweet them because then it gives us all an equal platform. Jasper, do you think there's there's something to be said, though, the, the, the duty that Channel 4 has as a broadcaster? Because clearly on Twitter, I can search for people's views on paedophile. I can choose to follow a few people that defend paedophile's right to, to speak freely or whatever. But, you know, when you look at kind of mass market, multi-million viewer, established terrestrial broadcasters, do they not have a special duty to, to handle this of the utmost sensitivity? Special duty is an interesting question because legally... Um... They are regulated by Ofcom, and you've seen this with um, what Channel 4 have been doing with their news show where they've had Jon Snow talking about his feelings in relation to uh, experiencing the war in Gaza. You've had Paul Mason um, expressing his anger at um, repeating himself when it comes to the behaviour of the banks. Both of those have had to be expressed on YouTube because they're not able to be expressed on Channel 4 news itself because Ofcom has rules about impartiality and what you're able to do. Um, obviously, there's redress if people feel that this particular show uh, breached those rules. But when you talk about duty, there's a legal requirement. But talking about Channel 4 as though it's some rarefied thing that perhaps for the moment it has bigger reach. Perhaps for the moment it is a special thing that it reaches people in a way that uh, YouTube doesn't. But long term, I mean, broadcast media is, is going to be one and the same with the Internet. Um, Increasingly, it's going to be delivered in the same way, and I mean that's going to be a challenge for regulators in the future. I, I don't think you can treat broadcast channels as though they are special, have a special duty. Or certainly, if you do now, they're going to have to start thinking about what they do when they are no longer a special, rarefied thing, separate from everything else. I mean, Katie, you must see this as a predominantly print journalist. We have an obscure situation here in the UK because in America, of course, their TV channels are 
insane they're fox news and so on but their print media is quite balanced whereas here it's the opposite television channels ostensibly are impartial so you get jeremy bowen reporting from the middle east for example and you know having to report quite insane things on both sides of the conflict dispassionately but do you feel a, a freedom as a print journalist that in this country you can editorialize you can say this guy said this but he's he's wrong something that a, a, a tv journalist could never actually say I just think it's so nuanced, actually. Sometimes when you go and interview someone, the things that really bring out who that person is, are the things that you notice, you know, sitting on the table or like behind them on the wall or the way they're dressed or very subtle things that you can bring out in what you're writing that maybe when someone's asking very direct questions to camera, actually those nuances of someone's personality, you know, they can't pick up on them in the same way. Sometimes if you're setting the scene for a feature, you might describe a book that was on the bookshelf as quite a, a way to really get to who that person is. You know, and they don't really do that kind of subtlety on TV. So actually, I think it really depends on who's writing it. If you're the right kind of journalist with the right, you know, if you're coming to it with the right attitude, you want to write something that is as close to the objective truth as you feel you can get or is very openly your opinion of what happened. So and actually, I think it's more of an issue or or just a more amusing issue that, of course, further down the line, there's just things that are openly being discussed online that you can't have in print, you know, and let, let alone... I mean, we had an insane situation, didn't we, over the kind of super injunctions where people yeah. were just openly talking, saying names, until eventually someone just said it. Was it on air or like... Parliament. Right. Where you're allowed to. Mm. That's <laughs> the only other place you're allowed to. And it's strange, isn't it, because the Daily Mail's articles around those kind of topics are quite meta because they say, you know, everyone in every workplace knows who it is. It's so easy to find, but this newspaper cannot report... The, the famous footballer that's alleged to have an affair, which is a bit ridiculous, isn't it? They subtly, yeah. Do you think the regulatory framework hasn't quite caught up then? And do you think it ever will? Do you think it's a bit like an arms race where, <laughs> you know, they're, they're constantly just going to try and stay one step ahead of each other? I seem to remember from from when, when the Levinson uh, hearings were happening and, and from the actual report itself when they had, I, I can't remember how long the total report was, but it's many, many pages and there was one page about the internet. Mm-hmm. When you're trying to regulate media, the future of media is, is online, inevitably. Um, that's ludicrous. Uh, the regulatory system, the libel system, the, the Ofcom, they are so far behind where we are now and there doesn't seem to be much chance of them you know, catching up for where we will be years' time, six months' time. Things will be so different. You know, someone could launch a new social network that changes the way people communicate in six months' time and it would completely upset what the regulators are even looking at now. I think someone, a uh, guest on this podcast, said a couple of months ago that the, the current regulatory framework is absolutely fantastic at solving problems. It's just solving the problems of 20 years ago <laughs> and, uh, and not now. It hasn't caught up with the technology. So next up, what does the future hold for local TV? Since the launch of the UK's first local TV station in Grimsby, of all places, last year, another 12 have gone live across the country and more are planned. Yet in spite of broadcaster demand, these stations have faced a clutch of difficulties, including, and perhaps most importantly, an inability to actually draw in viewers. Jasper, why can't these channels attract an audience? And do you think they've got a future? I think one of the uh, big problems with the local TV programme was that a lot of it was used, a lot of the uh, set-up uh, rhetoric referenced the US. Jeremy Hunt was in love. He, said, he famously said, if New York can have six channels, why can't London have one? Um, the US is a completely different market. Uh, it's a federal state. It's huge. You look at the newspaper market and they have very big newspapers focused on individual cities or individual states. And, and that makes sense because um, you have areas that are far less interconnected. Uh, the UK is a very small island comparatively. Having said that, there is 
something to be said, A, for the moral goal of providing um, better local news coverage, uh, local newspapers, a lot of whom are involved in uh, these uh, TV stations, have faced massive cutbacks uh, over the last more than a decade, and they are finding it difficult to cover local news. Anything that can be done to improve local coverage, you know, things like councils, um, planning, etc., is, is a really good idea. Then again, one of the problems is that they are pursuing a broadcast model which relies upon mass scale. The advertising system is set up um, for you know, national audiences or increasingly um, national but niche audiences. I'm not sure, even with some of the programmes that have been set up to try and provide um, aggregated advertising options across these local channels, I'm, I'm not sure that there is enough advertising out there that will want to use these to provide uh, long-term funding for any but a very, very small handful of these stations. There are other models that people are using um, that aren't purely commercial, which might have a better chance. Katie, why do you think they're even bothering? My personal take on local TV is that I, I don't know why they're bothering uh, because we just don't group ourselves in those kind of interests anymore. Like, I don't see myself as belonging to a particular area. You know, people work from home, they work remotely on laptops. Like, our kind of culture has changed. And whereas, like, maybe you'd be able to identify with the people who lived in your village in the 50s. Uh, now, I think people on the Internet, like, group in a really different way, which is to do with interests. You know, if you used to be the only goth in the village of Merthyr Tidville, you used to <laughs> maybe, you know, sit there on your own. And who could you have anything in common with except the other people in Merthyr Tidville? I'm whereas not sure now... people in will be happy you calling it a village. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. OK. <laughs> Sorry. I was thinking of it because they have that Merthyr Rocks Festival. Um, so it, I was thinking of it in positive terms. But now you've but, gone Facebook, uh, Facebook group and uh, you, you can know, thousands have a community of goths of goths, worldwide. Absolutely, yeah. The reason it should work is that you get YouTube vloggers who get an audience of millions, you know, for no... So I think if the content was amazing, that people will actually go to niche channels online. Like, so if London Live's content was incredible, it may not necessarily appeal to Londoners, but there's no reason it shouldn't attract a kind of wider international audience. I I mean, I, I think that's that's kind of gets to the... The core reason why this doesn't make that much sense on the a, on a, a board. Well, the, the content at the moment appears to be lacking massively in a lot of its reruns, you know, even London Live, etc., which you'd think would be one of the ones that should do well because it's got a huge potential audience. I think people do identify with their local areas um, to some extent, but it's one of a number of different interests they have which they will coalesce around. And again, in the future, definitely via the internet. I don't see why you've chosen a broadcast model when, frankly, you've, you've got the internet, the costs are much lower. Theoretically, um, you should be focusing on producing the best content, which appears to be a massive problem for these channels, uh, instead of chasing a model that's, that, that is stuck in, in the last sort of 20, 30 years. So I actually think you're really wrong about that thing about people identifying locally anymore. I mean, we know that young people can't afford to buy their own homes, so that's something that keeps people in an area. We know young people are able to work remotely. Like, I can work wherever I want. You know, next... Um, next week I could go and you know sit in Wales, sit in Scotland. Most people are actually working in that kind of way now. The more, the more kind of freelance and online work that becomes available. I don't, I just don't think people under thirty identify themselves based on where they live at all. I disagree with that. I think it's definitely middle class. Yep, uh, much more so. But um, there are a lot of people stuck in areas who have an internet connection and who are still much more embedded within their local communities. Much more. Um, much more concerned with what's actually going on and is affecting them there. Um, I think in London it's very easy to, to get the idea that things are very diffuse and, and that everyone's 
untied to where they actually live. But I think I think it's one of a number of different interest groups that people have. But I don't I'm, think it's... I'm so not you, from London, because like a lot of people now, I went to university somewhere different. You know, then I came to London because this is where there was work. But even that kind of... The arc that brought me to London no longer exists for journalists, for example. Mm. I don't think they have to be in London. You know, young people are going away to university. So I'm not like some, you know, Londonista who doesn't know what it's like to live in... My family's in Birmingham. Actually, I think now I probably would have stayed in Birmingham because the only reason I came here was because this is where all the papers were. But that is, that's not true anymore. I mean, Jasper, I, <laughs> I, I work in London every day. I'm here from like seven o'clock in the morning till about eight o'clock at night. But I live in a village called Pottersbury in South Northamptonshire. I get the train home and there's the local BBC TV news opt out after the news at 10. And I just don't watch it because it's just it's literally I couldn't care less whether Milton Keynes councillors you know, done X, Y and Z. It's just something that's just completely not relevant. And I wonder whether the, Katie does have a quite a strong point there that maybe it is a kind of generation above middle class thing, but young young people, up and coming professionals, just don't get their sense of community from a geographic based paradigm, as it were. It's more about their community, their interest, their workplace, rather than where they happen to sleep. That's a big part of why I don't think these are financially viable, but one of the reasons the BBC is providing funding um, from its budget if it's providing funding for its budget um, to actually support uh, these channels is because there is a, an acknowledged problem where there isn't enough actual local reporting that people are increasingly disengaged from local issues. Perhaps people are much more concerned about um, you know, the range of things that aren't about exactly where they live. I mean, I'm certainly that kind of person. But I cannot believe that people have no interest in you know, mm. local council issues, um, local planning. People actually do use quite a lot of things locally and... The whole point about a lot of the best of these projects, the ones I think actually have a chance of surviving, are the ones that are very closely integrated into their communities. There are ones which run training programs. There are ones which are not-for-profit organisations. I don't think there's a profitable business model here. I, I, mm. I don't see a purely commercial one, but I do think there is an ethical reason to have some sort of better local news. And with local newspapers the way they are, someone needs to help fund this and perhaps some sort of video propositions, more people watch video, mm. that enables people to integrate bits of um, these channels, I think they'd be better off completely online. That would work. I mean, Katie, you don't read the local newspaper where you live, but I suppose my question is, aren't you glad it's there? Because if it wasn't and the local council wasn't under some scrutiny, even though you don't read it, the, the local chief executive, the local politicians could get up to no good and it's only the fact that there's the local journalists keeping a BDI on them that stops them getting up to mischief. I mean, I do, I live in London now, so I do read The Standard, which I guess is my local paper. I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? Like Ham and High, for example, which is such a local paper. My Their journalists paper. are incredible. I mean, they, you know, they're amazing. And some of the stories they get are way better than what and The Standard. And almost nothing. Are they? But I mean, then they go up All to become... All local newspaper um, journalists are, sadly. I mean, I don't want to be like, you know, a total annoying millennial here. But like, I suppose I just, <laughs> like, I think of how I get a lot of my news, right? And we know that most people under 30 actually get it off social media. And so, like, I think there's a kind of hyper-local going on. When I go through Instagram, uh, which now has videos on, I could watch a riot going on in Tahir Square. You know, that is local news for someone. And, and like, we see these girls in, like, Turkey, you know, they, they're not allowed to... There was a big thing, wasn't there, where they got in trouble because they were laughing and they started posting pictures online of them laughing. You know, those issues, they, they actually feel more real to me and more important and more local in a way than whatever is going on, you know, in local planning. Because I don't own a property in, you know, this area. And, you know, in what sense am I, do I belong to this area? So I just think actually loads of, you know, young people, oops, uh, don't feel like that. And actually, if, they, if there is a future for um, 
local TV. To me, it seems so obvious it's in some kind of citizen journalism. It seems amazing that the standard hasn't picked up on that. I mean, Vice has got, you know, 21-year-olds with an iPhone running around in Afghanistan, like getting proper on-the-ground reporting, you know. I mean, actually, I don't think they send them out. I should probably say that. They, they, you know, they send their content in. But, like, if London Live, I don't know if they are doing this, but the number of, you know, amazing reports which they could get, real local news from all over London, from, you know, which kid hasn't got... Um, an Android but, phone or whatever they can... I mean, they're a commercial proposition. Last question, because we need to move on <laughs> to the next topic. But isn't there a problem that no one's interested, as you said at the beginning? I mean, I remember from my local council days back in York, is that my ward that I represented had 9,000 people. And we had to do lots of different local versions of the newsletter because people couldn't care less what was happening five streets away. Never mind, something happening in America or eight streets away was just as not relevant to them as it were than a local newspaper. So even hyper, hyper local, maybe. But you know, like I'm Paul Smith, the designer, goes and walks around London every morning and Instagrams them and posts them online. And I love reading those. And like that, in a way, is my local news culture, isn't it? I think... um... Again, this is why the broadcast model doesn't work. And what you actually, I think UGC, you generate content, definitely probably the best way this works, but you probably need some sort of structure to be able to channel that, check it and make sure it's accurate. The local TV stations have probably picked exactly the wrong solution for the problem they're trying to fix. And the final topic, why didn't Scotland have a pro-independence daily newspaper before the National? So the team behind the Sunday Herald have recently launched the paper and it's gone incredibly well. Sales have stabilised at 50,000, nearly double the original estimate. I mean, Jasper, do you, I mean, clearly there must be a market for this. You know, 45% of people voted for yes. Do you think this is just basic enterprise, basic economics, that they've seen a, a niche for um, a large you know, reservoir of readers and they're going for them? I, I mean, I think the, the what you've seen post the actual result in Scotland with I mean, SNP membership soaring, they're packing out halls with 12,000 people. I mean, that's a good chunk of the people who will buy the national quite happily. And yeah, it's good enterprise because they don't have many journalists working on it. And that's, that's yeah, if you can produce something that's bought by 50,000 people and sell just about enough advertising, perhaps supported by some of the businesses that are very pro-independence, um, you can maintain a decent sales um, figure on a small kind of outlay in terms of actual uh, effort and journalistic time, then it, it's a great idea for them. Um, I think they'll probably maintain it for quite a long period of time. Um, I mean, 50,000 isn't a huge figure in the grand scheme of things. Um, they're going to suffer to some extent from just general declines in print advertising inevitably. Mm. Um, they'll probably be more resilient than most other publications that don't have kind of a specific focus and, and a specific identification. I think this reflects sort of much bigger trends that partly to do with the internet and also in, in society generally that you have polarisation around niche issues you know, via social media you also have um, the growth of you know, things like The Economist and the FT still do quite well, even in print. And a lot of that's because of a sense of identity. You are an FT reader. You are an Economist reader. Um, if you look at what The Guardian's doing with membership, it's all about identifying as a Guardian reader. The National has hit upon the idea that you identify as a national reader because you are a Scottish nationalist. And it's quite a good tactic. Yeah, I mean, it may have much more longevity than a lot of its uh, competitors, certainly. So, Katie, you work for a national newspaper. How wise do you think it is for newspapers to go so behind one particular view? So, for example, you know, The Guardian's a bit lefty with a small L and The, the Telegraph's a bit righty with a small R, but basically you can still rely on them to, uh, to take a middle ground on most issues, though. Would you, do you think it's not actually good for a newspaper commercially to be so overtly in favour of one issue? Because it immediately alienates a whole group of people, doesn't it, who aren't going to read it? I kind of think it's a kind of short-term strategy. It seems amazing. And you're bound to, especially because, you know, to be launched on the back of something people are so interested in. 
uh, I can see how it's uh, it works. As a long-term strategy, I'm not really sure, you know, it works. I was trying to think of comparisons. I was thinking about, let's say, when the Feminist Times launched, which, you know, there was a huge kind of, I mean, there still is this kind of, you know, feminist um, you know, thing going on. It seemed like a really good time for it to launch. But, like, long-term, do people want to commit to reading? I mean, as a, as a journalist, it must give you quite limited scope when you're writing to always know you've got to be within certain, you know, parameters. And I think the big issue was, I hate to say it because I love the big issue and I love the concept of it, but it was, I remember when it came out, so many people I knew went, like, went to board, you know, buy it and there was like this, when a paper's launched with such a narrow idea or a publication, you know, in the short term it can seem so exciting, but like, I think long term the sales have really declined, haven't they, of like the big issue and it's like these things start to peter out or I wonder how the socialist work is doing. I don't think it has to be, uh, I don't think it has to be a, a long term play. I mean, the fact is it's probably not that expensive for them to invest in this. There will be underused print capacity. So, well, you think making a print newspaper costs you lots of money. Again, they're not using many journalists and there will be, getting it printed won't be that expensive. Newsquest are not known, the company that are running this are not known for trying crazy new things. Um, quite the, the opposite. The fact that they've done this is, is quite shocking, frankly, but that mm. suggests that the, the potential downside was pretty low. Um, and, you know, why not take advantage of something that's short term? I mean, if you look at what the New Statesman have launched with uh, May 2015, which... Yeah, smaller outlay probably because there's nothing in print, but they've launched something very specifically aimed at the next general election. They launched it in the summer. Yeah, it's got a nine-month shelf life. Maybe it'll morph into something else, but it, it doesn't necessarily have to. It's got a, it's got a short-term purpose which will serve both commercial interests and also, you know, possibly help strengthen the other titles, etc. Mm. Um, you know, you can look at the same for for the Times. They've got Redbox, uh, which is, it's not explicitly a short-term project but it's yeah, very clearly aimed at the election i think there's a lot more the internet's much more quickly moving the media industry is much more quickly moving now i think people are probably more prepared to try short-term things that may or may not pan out as long as they don't spend too much money giving it a go i suppose we're talking about slightly different terms of like framework for success because you're talking about whether they'll lose money which they might not long term and i'm sure they have thought about it in quite a but like in five years, we'll be talking about it as an incredibly exciting publication that we like rush out to, you know, read and has had groundbreaking and award-winning articles. It, I mean, there's just parameters to success. You know, do you think long-term people will remain excited about it? Katie, can I ask <laughs> you a question? Um, you know, as someone, as, as a journalist in a, in a strong-selling national newspaper, how often are you challenged on your views whenever you put something forward in an article? I mean, clearly there's the comments on online, but do people email you directly? Do they go to you on Twitter and try and constructively engage with you other than just abusing you as you mentioned earlier oh right um yeah all the time um and, was, and yeah. is that a useful use of your time really how how much do you actually engage if someone takes the time the trouble to send you a long email what's your reaction do you think okay i'll engage with them or do you think actually i'm going to end up inevitably corresponding with this person and it's going to take hours uh, i engage with every single person that sends me anything even if they tweet me going hi i'll reply saying hey because um, sometimes you never know where those conversations are going and they'll turn out to, you know, have really interesting views. Like I've written columns then written the next week's column saying I've completely changed my mind and I'm really sorry and I got that really wrong. You know, I think I wouldn't be a hypocrite. Like I wouldn't want to sit here and like say something or write something in print and that actually turns out like I'm, you know, I might be wrong. I don't know. I'm not God. So like I say things and people tell me I'm wrong and that's great and you only know that by engaging with them. So I sometimes, because I can spend literally all day on my phone, I reply to all the letters I get, I reply to all the tweets I get. Now I'm on Instagram, so I reply to all of those. I don't really add people on Facebook, but I do reply to their messages. And, you know, it's great. Like, I mean, people say amazing 
People say that's being a journalist, isn't it? Like they know loads more than I do. I, I think it's one of the best things about being a journalist now is that you can have a two-way relationship with your readers. It, it, I mean, it's easier for me because I have a niche audience of people who work in the media. Um, but I'll often try and incorporate what they say into articles because I'm online. I'll, I'll do it. I'll incorporate tweets into articles when people challenge my views all the time. Some journalists have difficulty accepting um, that transition because the old model was, you know, you you put it out in the newspaper and it's gone. It's it's static. It's never going to change. Being online means you can have a constant dialogue. You can constantly evolve what you're writing. You can constantly have conversations to change what you think or just to present a different opinion. I think it's I think it's wonderful. I think journalists should uh, embrace it as much as possible. And it's such, like, to me, I feel, I feel like to not be like that is such a total misunderstanding of social media. Like, I have journalists who I work with on my paper who are more senior than me, who I will tweet and they won't reply to me because there is a hierarchy that exists in papers. And that mentality of, even within the paper, that there's a hierarchy, you know, that exists and that they wouldn't reply to their readers. Whereas, like, I don't look up, you know, I don't care who they are. But I don't have any sense that someone works in white van and I work on a paper and I wouldn't reply to them. But it does amaze me. And I think, again, it's a generational thing that, like I say, people in my own paper I will try and communicate with online and they'll have this sense of, oh, you know, you don't respond to someone with less followers than you. I don't think it's just a generational thing, but I'm obviously excused that way. But, I mean, yeah, there is a, a big problem with people seemingly viewing social media and, and interacting with their audiences as above them. And I mean, that's ludicrous. Your audience are the people you're serving that's they're the only people that matter it used to be that only your editor mattered because all that you cared about was getting your front page um and it didn't actually matter if anyone liked the front page or cared what you'd written as long as, as, long as you as, got the splash as long as you got the splash it's fine but now you can actually find out whether or not everyone thinks you're a massive dick because you wrote something stupid which is wonderful and on that note, I think it's uh, probably best to close the podcast if we can. Uh, we've run out of metaphorical tape, guys, so unfortunately we're going to have to bring things to a close. But just before we do, Jasper, could you let people know how they can follow you on Twitter? And do you want to tell us a little bit about your blog so that how people can follow it, etc.? My name's Jasper Jackson. I'm the editor of The Media Briefing. I'm Jasp Jackson, without the ER, on Twitter. Basically, I cover media business models, uh, what's happening, how it's changing, emphasis on digital we cover everything. Um, if anyone wants to tweet me about anything you should write, I'm quite happy to listen to ideas. Excellent. Katie? I'm Katie Glass ST uh, on Twitter, which is the main place I kind of interact. I've got an Instagram as well, but um, you can link to that for my Twitter. I write a weekly column in the Sunday Times and I write features for Sunday Times magazine. And I also um, write for all sorts of other publications. And I try and share it all on my blog, which is just katie.glass. And if anyone wants to follow me, I'm at Paul W.R. Blanchard and you can go to the mediafocus.org.uk website if you like and leave your email address where you'll get a shiny email once a fortnight letting you know when the new podcast is out. The associate producer was Jordan Greenaway. I'm Paul Blanchard. Catch you next time. A Big Things Media Production. Big Things! <laughs>